Hello and welcome to National League Town, Mets fandom, Mets history, Mets life, with Long Island's own Greg Prince and Jeff Eisen. Hey, Greg. Greetings from just off the Jackie Robinson Rotunda, Jeff. Today, we are basking in the glow of the New York Mets Hall of Fame. This is a special edition of National League Town as it's the best of National League Town. And if you're thinking, well, I've heard your show. So what is it, five minutes? That's not nice. This is a compilation from our first three episodes back in February, where we talked about the Mets Hall of Fame. The Mets Hall of Fame. You've heard of it. Hopefully you visited it. Have you ever really thought about it? Well, Jeff and I did early on in our tenure here at National League Town, We thought it would be fun to kind of put those episodes together, as Jeff said, as a best of and no wise guy. It's not just five minutes. Uh, Very briefly, what is the Mets Hall of Fame? The Mets Hall of Fame recognizes greatness in the Mets story. It recognizes transcendent figures. It recognizes the top players, the top executives, the top announcers to a certain degree. Uh, It's the Hall of Fame, except it's the Mets version. A lot of what you're going to hear us talking about again, from several, many months ago, is who else we would like to see in there. Uh, There has not been anybody inducted since we recorded those episodes. Uh, We may have forgotten somebody. Don't worry. We realized that it was not all-encompassing. And I'm sure in the year ahead, we are going to bring up other players and have all kinds of suggestions for the Mets and their Hall of Fame committee. And just in case it's not top of mind, because the Mets only do the Hall of Fame now and then, and the physical Mets Hall of Fame is sort of off to the side of the tribute to Jackie Robinson and kind of overshadowed by all the retail that's next door, let me give you a quick rundown of who's already in so you don't have to worry about why didn't you mention this person. The people who are in the Mets Hall of Fame, an entity founded in 1981 with the first class Joan Payson, the first owner of the New York Mets. Casey Stengel, the first manager of the New York Mets. The ensuing classes. Gil Hodges, manager of the 69 Miracle Mets. George Weiss, first president of the New York Mets. The next year, William Shea, the prime mover and shaker. You know Shea Stadium. And Johnny Murphy, the GM of the Mets, 1969. The class of 84. Ralph Kiner, Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, the original voices of the New York Mets, together for 17 seasons, Ralph and Bob a lot longer with the Mets. We started getting players in 1986, starting with two absolutely iconic figures. Bud Harrelson, great shortstop. Rusty Staub, great right fielder and pinch hitter. 1988 was the next class. You didn't so much notice the Hall of Fame because they were retiring this man's number, the franchise, Tom Seaver. And then one a year for the next few years. Jerry Kuzman, greatest lefty in Mets history. Ed Cranepool, 18 seasons, a Met legend, one of the great pinch hitters and all-star in his day. Cleon Jones caught the last out of the 1969 World Series and hit 340 the year we won the World Series. Jerry Grody. Still the greatest defensive catcher in Mets history. And Tug McGraw went in in 1993. You know what you were thinking that day. You got to believe, as Tug told us when he inspired us with his pitching and his enthusiasm to win the pennant in 73. 
There were a few years with uh, no Hall of Fame inductees. 1996, they started to look at the 1986 era. Who better to lead off the 1980s than Mookie Wilson, inducted in 96. Great center fielder, hit a ground ball toward Buckner, too. Keith Hernandez went in in 1997, just as he was becoming known better for his sitcom appearance than he was for his baseball. Now we know him for everything. Gary Carter, 2001, was the next inductee, one of the great catchers in baseball history, five years a mitt. Tommy Agee, inducted posthumously in 2002, center fielder on those 69 mitts. The Hall of Fame took a long break, came back with a vengeance in 2010 with four more figures from the 1986 Mets. General Manager and Architect Frank Cashin. Manager Davey Johnson. We're not just going to win. We're going to dominate. And the two ten-pole players along with Hernandez and Carter of that era. Dwight, Dr. K. Gooden. You know him from his pitching. And Daryl Strawberry out in right field. And you know him from his home run hitting. Uh, we went back to the Hall of Fame in 2012 and inducted Brooklyn's own John Franco. A year later, a few years before we went all the way and retired his number, we put Mike Piazza in the Mets Hall of Fame. And then seven years later, seven long years later, it was announced new inductees who would have to wait one year for their ceremony because of COVID. The great Edgardo Alfonso, greatest second baseman, third baseman in Mets history, a great hitter. And I am so effusive because he's one of my all-time favorite players. The great pitcher, Ron Darling. Great announcer, too, by the way. And John Matlack. We mentioned Jerry Kuzman, who's the other great left-hander in Mets history. It was John Matlack, uh, rookie of the year in 72, and stalwart of that 73 pennant-winning team. Uh, those are the members of the Mets Hall of Fame. And you could do worse than having those guys in. But we think we could do better and have more guys in. And that's what we're going to talk about in the episode to come. We hope you enjoy this look back from our first three episodes on the best of National League Town. What I would like to see is some representation from the early years of the Mets. When they started the Mets Hall of Fame in 1981, which was something Frank Hashin did, so in addition to building a world champion, he had at least a little foresight to turn back and say, let's get some pride going in this organization, sort of like Buck Showalter is saying these days. They inducted Casey Stengel and Joan Payson, two choices that couldn't have been more apt because they were there at the beginning. And they made the first few classes, for the most part, people who had had something to do with building the franchise. But when they moved on to the players... They sort of skipped over the early 60s, the formative years of the Mets, and went right to the 69 to 73 period. And a whole lot of names that are associated with winning a World Series or a pennant were both Buddy Harrelson and Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Jerry Grody, Ned Cranepool and Cleon Jones and so on. And of course, we love them and we approve of those choices. It seems that in the spasms of paying attention to the Hall of Fame, the Mets have never thought to give any kind of honor to the guys who started it. And when I say started it, the guys who played for the Mets in 1962 and 63 and before Gil Hodges came along as manager. I think that's an important part of the Mets story. I don't think the Mets are the Mets without those humble beginnings and the guys who occasionally broke through. So what I suggested in the article you mentioned was something I cheekily refer to as 
the Casey Stengel vestibule. You want to call it the Casey Stengel foyer or foyer, be my guest, the ante room, whatever you want. And I, I'm serious about this, though, uh, whether the however they physically present it. Devote some space and devote some Hall of Fame honor to guys like Ron Hunt, who was the first starting Mets all-star, a guy who challenged Pete Rose to the Rookie of the Year and who had this incredible relationship with the fans of his day. And these fans continued to stick with him through these years. I, I wrote a piece about that a few years ago. He came back to City Field and you know, signed autographs, and it was a happening of sorts. Guys like Frank Thomas, who held the Met record for home runs for 13 years until Dave Kingman came along. He had 34 home runs for a team that lost 120 games. Guys like Jay Hook. Jay Hook's accomplishment was winning the very first game in Mets history. Why is that worthy of honoring? Because they lost nine in a row and they were never going to win until Jay Hook came along. And incidentally, Jay Hook continues to be kind of a voice for the 62 Mets. He's the guy who the Mets go to when they need to interview somebody, when they need to direct a reporter somewhere. He is, you know, articulate to this day and looks back fondly and tells great Casey Stengel stories, even on himself. So there are those guys, a couple of other guys I mentioned. And, you know, you could certainly look at guys who are no longer with us. I, I would like to honor those who are, quite frankly, among the living so they can enjoy it. They're not getting any younger. We talk so much about Casey Stengel, or as much as we do, we talk about the original Mets and we kind of laugh about it, but I, I think there's a page missing from the Met history book if the Mets Hall of Fame doesn't at least tip a cap to those guys. And after 60 years, it's kind of hard to ask them to wait around for the 70th anniversary to do it. So uh, the guys I mentioned, Hunt, Hook, Thomas, as well as Roger Craig and Joe Christopher, all Bachwood still among us. Why not? If you're going to have a, an old timers ceremony this year, why not say, hey, ladies and gentlemen, meet our new Hall of Famers and put up plaques as soon as you walk into the Hall of Fame? There always seems to me to be a sense that the 62 Mets were a source of embarrassment for a long time. They lost 162 games. Do I have that right? Some team had to be first. And the ground for new teams wasn't paved as easily as it is for teams now. So the Mets did not have a lot of high draft picks from other teams. And again, somebody had to be first, and these are the pioneers. These are the ones who, first ones in Mets uniforms, only seven years later, they won it all. They deserve some recognition. If the Mets didn't have Casey Stengel and the Mets weren't fascinating in their futility, They'd be the Houston Astros. <laughs> I don't mean the Houston Astros who banged on trash cans, but the bland Houston Astros who I guess people in Houston cared about them. But uh, it took them about 20 years to put themselves on the map or, or maybe, you know, when Jim Mountain wrote Ball Four and gave them the back end of the book. So, you know, the Mets had books written about them in 1963 because they were just you couldn't take your eyes off them whether it was for losing or whether it was for maybe once a week not losing. They're made up of individuals and they have stories. And there is a link from 1962 to 1969. And yeah, you want to celebrate winning. And I, I don't think the Mets are, we, we talk about all the things the Mets haven't done to honor their history. They've been pretty good about honoring 1969. They've been pretty good about waving their two world championships. And that's great. 
but fans are made from a thousand different motivations. And a lot of fans were made in 1962 and in those polo grounds days. And when Shea Stadium opened, you open up the Casey Stengel vestibule, you put up a few plaques, you you tell the story, you link it up to, to the next phase in Mets history, and you're a more complete franchise for it. Why isn't Ron Hunt in the Mets Hall of Fame? He was the Mets' first all-star. Yeah, I couldn't tell you why exactly Ron Hunt isn't in the Mets Hall of Fame, other than perhaps it was because he was not part of a winning team. Funny thing is, you go back and read the contemporary literature, every article in which Ron Hunt was mentioned in a national publication, or perhaps in a column locally, said, well, you know one thing, that when the Mets finally do get good, it's going to be because we're because Ron Hunt was playing second base. And as it turned out, Ron Hunt got traded for Tommy Davis, and Tommy Davis got traded for Tommy Agee, so in a way he had a great deal to do with it. I think the Mets were just ready to move on when they started putting in Hall of Famers from the playing ranks. The first time was 86, and they had Buddy Harrelson and the recently retired Rusty Staub were their first two choices. And then when Tom Stever retired, they put him in as soon as possible. He was the next guy. And it went like that. That they've they've often had a, a hard time sort of pausing their march through history. You know, they they didn't put Tommy Agee in until he was dead, uh, which which always broke my heart. It was like, oh, we just realized we forgot to put Tommy Agee in the Mets Hall of Fame, and even though we've already put in a few guys from '86, we'll we'll step back and do that. And then they just kind of forgot about the Hall of Fame for a bunch of years. The uh, most recent Hall of Fame class I thought was a great sign because it was Matt Lack from the 70s, Darling from the 80s, Alfonso from the 90s and early 2000s. And they showed an ability to walk and chew gum at the same time by saying we can look at multiple eras and say, hey, there are some players who deserve this tribute. So I, I hope you know, Ron Hunt especially, but you know, I'm sincere about the other guys too, but Ron Hunt especially is somebody who really does stand out from those early years. And if you could, even if you could just put one guy in, from the polo grounds, early Shea Stadium era, I would hope it would be Ron Hunt. How about Ron Swoboda? Man, now, now you're playing my song. Uh, you know, Ron Swoboda, to me, is, you know, there are a handful of, shall we say, er Mets. You are hyphen Mets. They just stand for what the Mets are about. And Ron Swoboda is one of those guys, came up, I think he was 20 years old when he uh, f first made the, the major leagues under Casey Stengel, by the way, had all this raw power, didn't quite know what he was doing in the outfield. And yet he stayed at it. The fans, the way fans will, they both loved him and kind of rolled their eyes at him. And he's just such a delightful personality and has been such an important part of keeping that story going. And I, th I think when you get to this point in somebody's life, and I think we saw it a little bit with Keith Hernandez, is that's that's part of it. It's not just, okay, here are his numbers. Well, you know, they're they're a little light in the in the RBI column or something. But Ron Swoboda has just made himself such an important part of the Mets family all these years, whether it's the fantasy camps, whether it's you know the on-field celebrations that they've managed to have. I know another articulate spokesman for, for what we've done here and what we've had. Just love the guy. And, oh, again, I, I, here's a line I used in, in that column you mentioned. You know, we're talking about the Mets Hall of Fame. We're not talking about the College of Cardinals here. If you want, if you want to be the, uh, the so-called small hall advocate for Cooperstown and say, oh, dear, 
might be lowering our standards for Harold Baines or whatever. I'm not going to really argue with you, even if I, I don't agree. But the Mets Hall of Fame, who is more Met than Ron Swoboda? So he did it on the field and he's done it off the field. And he's just such a big part of the Mets. I don't understand how he's not already in the Hall of Fame. I agree with you. I met him a few times in conjunction with Fantasy Camp. I went in 2009, and at the Fantasy Camp reunion game at City Field, he was in the dugout for my team. And Swoboda comes up to me and tells me one of the dirtiest jokes I have ever heard in my life. I can't repeat it, but it was just filthy. And part of me is thinking, this is Ron Swoboda telling me this filthy joke. And I'm picturing him making that catch during the World Series. And I'm thrilled that Ron Swoboda has his hand on my shoulder. And I'm laughing all at the same time. Ron Swoboda, definitely a great part of Mets history. What about Felix Mion? Felix Mion could be a great addition to the Mets Hall of Fame for a number of reasons. First off, I was... To my mind, invoking him, I think, for a uh, third time today, the best second baseman the Mets ever had until Edgardo Alfonso. We're talking about an all-around game. Didn't hit with power, but he hit every day. He played every day. He was the first Met to play all 162 games of a season, the only Met to play every single game of a season. He set the all-time hits record that lasted until Lance Johnson came along more than 20 years later. He turned double plays beautifully with Bud Harrelson. He transformed that infield when he came over in 73. One of the, you, you know how we love to moan about trades that didn't work out. Here's a trade that really worked out. Gary Gentry and Danny Frisella for Felix Mion and George Stone. And while we love to harp on the fact that George Stone didn't start a game in the World Series, let's relish the fact that Felix Mion started every day Granted, and never in the World Series, but he started you know, virtually every day in 73, virtually every day for four or five years. Let us not forget the way Felix Mion choked up on a bat. I don't think that anybody who grew up in the New York area in the 1970s who went to the playground, who played stickball, who played any kind of ball, didn't choke up on the bat at least once and say, hey, I'm Felix <laughs> Mion. And it worked for him. Maybe it would work for some others today, but you don't see it like that. And I'll throw in the fact that he was the first Latino star the Mets had. Big Puerto Rican community in New York. He became a very popular player, remains a very popular figure, not just with grown-up kids from 50 years ago, but you know, he's been an ambassador for the team. He's scouted. He's remained associate. I think he, he's, I don't know if he was there your year, but he's been involved with those fantasy camps. And, you know, just... Just a great part of, of the story and of, of the landscape of, of what it's meant to be a Met. One of those guys who came here as a star and didn't get worse, which we know how that happens with Mets. So I think he's been a little lost. Big part of a World Series participant team kind of, you know, swept under the rug a little bit. I don't, I don't think by any evil plot or anything, just kind of forgotten about a little bit. But you ask anybody who grew up in that era. And, and let's not kid ourselves. We're, we're, when we talk about fans, we talk about kids who stayed with the team for the most part. So, you know, that's worth something. I'm, I'm always looking for reasons to put somebody in the Mets Hall of Fame. I don't think I have to look for too many, but there are a lot for Felix Mion. So, and I'll throw this one in. All due respect to Keith Hernandez, 
greatest mustache in Mets history. How about Jesse Orozco? Now we're in uh, the territory of, what do you mean he's not in the Hall of Fame? Up to this point, I think, what well, we've got six players from the 86 Mets in the Hall of Fame, plus the manager and general manager. And Jesse Orozco is not among them, which is bizarre because I would guess if you were to Google 1986 Mets World Series, certainly World Series Game 7, the image would be of Jesse Orozco on his knees, arms in the air, glove somewhere over flushing, maybe over a story by then. The guy who got the last out of the World Series got so many big last outs for so many years. Was one of the best relievers in the National League for about four seasons. He had one of the most phenomenal stretches I've ever seen to this day from a reliever. Just as the Mets were getting good, an all-star a couple of times. And even if none of that had happened, even if all we could say was he came in and got the third out of the ninth inning of the seventh game of the 1986 World Series, that alone, in my mind, would be worth it. But he was one of the best and most consistent relievers, again, until he wasn't, because all relievers eventually let you down. I would love to see number 47 in there. Maybe not for Tom Glavin, but definitely for Jesse Orozco. I agree with you there. How about number 50? You know, last summer, when the Mets indeed inducted Ron Darling, I was fortunate enough to get a media credential that night, and that allowed me a chance to chat with Ron Darling for a few minutes. And I asked him, now that you're in, is there anybody you'd like to see in, maybe from your era? And he did not hesitate. He said, Sid Fernandez. People don't realize how good Sid Fernandez was, how important he was to our team. And I think it's funny that when, if you watch Game 7, when the MLB Network reruns it, sometimes SNY has rerun it, You'll hear Vin Scully immediately refer to Sid Fernandez as the unsung hero of the game. And I'm thinking, how is he already the unsung hero when none of the singing is complete yet? The game is still going on. How do we know we're not going to be talking about Sid Fernandez? But that's sort of become his calling card that people don't appreciate how important Sid Fernandez is two and a third. Turn game seven around. Well, I think we all had appreciated. And that was a starting pitcher coming in to give along with Roger McDowell's five innings in Houston, the most important relief stint a Met has ever thrown, certainly in the postseason. That's Sid Fernandez moonlighting. Sid Fernandez was a huge part of the Met rotation, 86, huge part of the rotation for almost 10 years. One of the most talented pitchers you ever saw, sometimes a little trouble harnessing it, had stuff that was just so unlike what anybody else was throwing that it would just completely confound batters when he was really on. And not a bad athlete, by the way. I know he was sort of a, a big man, but you know, he could hit the ball. He could, he wasn't really much of a fielder, but we're not putting him in the Hall of Fame for his fielding. We're putting him in because he was El Cid. You would face Doc Gooden, you would face Ron Darling, you would face Sid Fernandez. You had a bad series. Before people think we've lost our minds, David Wright's not in the Mets Hall of Fame. Why not? guess they just want to give him a chance to, to cool out, get his back in better shape before he has to you know, hold up his plaque because it's probably heavy. As far as we're concerned, I think as far as any Mets fan is concerned, David Wright could call up tomorrow and say, I'd like to be inducted into your Hall of Fame next Thursday. And they would say, sure, what time? I'm not a big fan of the phrase no brainer because it's always nice to use your brain. As close to instinctual as possible is putting David Wright in the Hall of Fame. I think the only reason you, you wait is so you can, A, take care of some people who've waited a lot longer, and B, figure out, do you want to have a David Wright day for his induction into the Hall of Fame 
and retire his number, or do you want to make it two separate days? Because there's nothing to think about other than to look back and enjoy what this man did as a Met, as the captain, all that stuff that, that we, we know because it wasn't that long ago. Knowing what we know about David Wright, I think he'd be very happy to go in on a on a bill with Sid Fernandez and Jesse Orozco and Ron Hunt. He'd really love to go in with Howard Johnson, probably, because Howard was one of his mentors. So I think he anything where he's not the center of attention would make him happy because that's the kind of personality he has. But let's hope that David Wright has a very long time to enjoy being a Mets Hall of Famer. And, you know, they'll they'll get around to it eventually. It's just a matter of the form it takes. And let's conclude with people who were not on the field. And we must start with Fred Wilpon. Why is it in a Mets Hall of Fame? You know, Fred Wilpon holds the record for being an owner of the Mets longer than anybody else. And if we're going to talk about longevity, we have to, to give it to Fred Wilpon. Fred Wilpon owned the Mets while they were in the World Series, or owned at least a piece, three separate times. I can't go on and, and say this any longer. Listen, Fred Wilpon, <laughs> Fred Wilpon did what Fred Wilpon thought was right. Let's put it that way. We're moving away from the Fred Wilpon year. And you know what? They want to give Nelson Doubleday a plaque. I love that. Because Nelson Doubleday really was an important part of turning the Mets around in 1980. And he did have a partner, a limited partner at the time. And if you want to be super generous about it and put something up there for Fred Wilpon, well, I think you'd have to put a guard on it to make sure it wasn't graffitied. You know, live and be well, Fred Wilpon. Let's put it that way. Bobby Valentine should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. I'm not sure why this hasn't happened yet. Yeah, Bobby Valentine inhabited the role of Mets manager in a way I've never felt anybody has. Maybe not the pinnacle reached the way a couple of other managers did, but man, he loved being the manager of the Mets. It felt, you know, as, as my mother liked to throw the Yiddish around, it felt beshirt when he came back. <laughs> like it was meant to be. And he lifted that team. I don't think he gets nearly enough credit wherever credit is sold for, for doing this. You know, the Mets were moribund throughout the 90s, and Bobby Valentine just woke them up, got the most out of players you never would have dreamed would do anything, and somehow got the most out of a combustible bunch of personalities, and knew the game so well, and worked umpires. They couldn't stand him, but he got his way a lot. Every night was just fantastic. Bobby Valentine, and he won. Two playoff spots in a row, which we've seen is not easy to do. Went to a World Series, people love to point this out, went to a World Series with an outfield that was Timo Perez, Jay Payton, and Benny Agbayani. Come on, uh, no no disrespect to those guys. I'd, I'd make a case for at least one of them <laughs> to be in the Mets Hall of Fame if, if we were working our way down the list. But you know, then you remember what he was like after 9-11 and, and how tirelessly he put himself into helping everybody he could through every mechanism he could. And to, to this day is a part of that story and you know, the families who, who've gone on. There are so many angles to look at Bobby Valentine from and all of them are Mets Hall of Fame worthy. And I don't know if you know he just rubbed too many people the wrong way somewhere along the way or he it just never felt like it was a priority. But God, I, I wish it was a priority. He should be in the Hall of Fame already. And the Sandwich Hall of Fame for creating the sandwich wrap. Who 
doesn't love a rap? I learned more about baseball from Tim McCarver than any other announcer in my lifetime. He certainly should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. I think it has been forgotten. What an impact Tim McCarver had on the Mets fan experience, especially when he came along and was in his heyday as a Mets announcer. We love Bob Murphy and Ralph Kiner and Lindsey Nelson. They stand alone. Right now, they do stand alone. They're the only announcers in the Mets Hall of Fame. And they have a very special place in our hearts. They were the first. We all learned baseball to a certain extent because of, of how they explained it to us. But they only told us so much. So you get to 1983. Ralph Kiner is still on TV. And I, I think at that point, he's, I, won't, I don't want to say he was mailing it in, but it was not in the most exciting time for the Mets, nor was he that excited behind the mic. Tim McCarver came in and woke Ralph Kiner up, which is not the only reason to to honor Tim McCarver's broadcasting legacy. But today, when we talk about Gary, Keith, and Ron, it's a hoot. But the internet and Twitter and all that existed in the mid-1980s. We'd be talking about Ralph, Tim, and Steve, the Steve being Zabriskie, as just the greatest booth in baseball. And I don't even need to know what the other booths were doing. Uh, McCarver, you're right, explained baseball, talked about the hitter thought process, talked about where fielders should be playing talked about why a pitcher was going to throw this pitch. It was a revelation. And we got it every night. Later, viewers across the country would get it once a week. They'd get it in the postseason. And maybe you know Tim McCarver had was sort of wearing on people by then. But it, when it was fresh, it was amazing. It, to me, it would be like if you got John Madden doing only your team's games when John Madden was at his best. And that's what it was like for 16 seasons. If they ever get around to the broadcaster's wing, so to speak, <laughs> reignite Tim McCarver is the, is that figure between the beginning and the contemporary. And of course, Gary Cohn and Howie Rose. Problem with Gary Cohn and Howie Rose are, I believe, on the Hall of Fame committee. Either one of those guys is going to vote for himself, That which is, speaks very well to their character. What you have to do, I think, is what was done when I was in college. There was a state senator named Lee Moffat in Tampa. And he was instrumental in getting some very important research hospital built on the campus of my alma mater, the University of South Florida. And they wanted to name it for him. And he's like, do not name this for me. That is wrong. He he was not Bill Shane. He, he didn't want the credit. Well, you know what they did? They literally waited till he left the committee room. And then they had a vote and they named it the Lee Moffat Hospital. So if you can figure a way to get Gary Cohn and Howie Rose out of the room when they conduct the next Hall of Fame committee session, the first thing you do is vote these two guys in the Hall of Fame. They are so important to the modern Mets. They mean so much to fans of all ages. You know, the way we think of, of Murph and Kiner and Lindsay and even McCarver is what people not that much younger than us think about Gary Cohn and Howie Rose. They have raised them in baseball. They've both been at it for more than 30 years Gary's been the A radio voice or the radio voice for about what, 16 years. And then he moved seamlessly into television. You would not know that it was a new medium for him. Every night is the greatest show on television with him and Keith and Ron. And Howie Rose is still our avatar. <laughs> Mets fans, he's still speaking for us. He did it as the host of Mets Extra, which which so transcended every pregame show that came before him. He did a fine job on television. I don't think it was really his medium for baseball. And when he got to radio, it's what he was born to do. He is the epitome of the excellent hometown announcer. We love spending time with Howie, just like we love spending time with Gary. They're Mets fans through and through, and yet they're both stone-cold pros about it. There's none of this we and leave the we 
to people like us. We'll, we'll, we'll talk in the first person plural. I don't want our announcers talking down to us. And they don't. They're such pros. And they've got such you know, fluidity of language and the ability to describe the game, the ability to weave opinions in and out without being overbearing. Just so many good things about them. And you can't pretend that baseball broadcasting in the Mets booth ended the day that Lindsay and Bob and Ralph were inducted in 1984. They're doing they're only doing themselves a disservice by, by not consenting to be in the Mets Hall of Fame. They're doing us a disservice because it gives us an incomplete picture. So, yeah, you get McCarver in there, you get Cone, you get Rose, and you've got six of the greatest voices who've ever done baseball. And more importantly, you've got you know, the six greatest voices who've ever done Mets baseball. So let's get that done. Agreed. Uh, one thing with Howie is that he's seen now as the arbiter for Mets history. And when people were wondering, will they bring back the black jersey? Twitter was filled with, what, what does Howie think? I think it's fascinating that Howie disdained social media for so long sustained everything that wasn't traditional. You can go read his memoir, which came out about nine years ago. And he said, mark my words, I'll never be on Twitter. I hate blogs, which was more prominent at the time. All of that stuff. And then he dipped a toe in, and now you can't get him off there. He has only enhanced his presence for Mets fans, and he's he, he interacts, and he's not above it all. And yeah, the black jersey thing, I mean, you can have fun with Howie to a certain point. Uh, he would I'm sure if you gave him the opportunity, he would burn every black jersey in sight. <laughs> but he also sort of said, okay, you know, maybe I don't speak for everybody. So, you know, again, he's just like a great guy to hang out with at the game. Even if you're not at the game, you feel like you are because Howie Rose is, is in the booth. And boy, I can't wait for him to come back. Just, you know, just like we can't wait for baseball to come back. You know, he missed the last part of last season for medical reasons. I just hope that everything's going great and when we turn on WCBS or the MLB app, uh, we hear Howie's voice on radio, just as we hear Gary's voice on television. And boy, uh, aren't we lucky. No, I, I can't wait to hear Howie in spring training start getting cranky with the quality of the games and wonder why they're doing it and what the purpose of this is and that why fans have to pay for practice. We know it's going to happen, and I can't wait to hear it. And with Gary, one of the reasons why he's so good at what he does is because he can shapeshift every night. One night it's Ron Darling there, so the broadcast becomes a little more analytical. And then Keith's there, and he's got to draw it out of Keith because Keith's thinking about Haji or maybe where he's going to have dinner later or his commute. And Gary has to react differently to Keith than he does with Ron. And then the three of them are there, and it's like the all-stars. And it can be a close game where Gary is unmatched in calling the action. And we've not only heard it, we've seen it when he you're sort of pantomiming his emotions when a, a run is uh, scoring to win the game. And when it's a blowout, it's somehow even better. We'd prefer a blowout on the Mets' behalf. But honestly, the Mets losing a 10-2 to game in the eighth inning is entertaining as the Mets winning a 2-1 to one game in the eighth inning because these guys are going through their box of baseball cards or reading from the media guide or not doing any kind of shtick, just letting loose. And to be able to, to make a meal out of whatever the ingredients are is an art that very few announcers have. And Gary Cohn has had it from the beginning. When, when he took over for Gary Thorne, who I like fine, in the late 80s with Bob Murphy, they were a wonderful group. And, and, and by the way, Gary Thorne, if you want to throw him in the Mets Hall of Fame for what he did for Bob Murphy the way Carver did it for Kiner, 
I'm, I'm fine with that too. Right. But uh, when, when Gary Cohen replaced Gary Thorne, my reaction was, oh, why did they have to get rid of Gary Thorne? He was so good. Who's this guy? And boy, was I disabused of any hesitancy early in the 1989 season. Remember, he, he had to work with his childhood idol who may not have been the most easygoing guy to, to work with from the evidence. It was a legend nonetheless. And they were both just fantastic radio voices. He knew when to see to Bob Murphy. He knew when to pick up for Bob Murphy. It was kind of seamless when he became the main voice as Bob Murphy had to do less and less as he went along. And those two years that he did with Howie Rose were such a gift to us all when they were the radio voices of the Mets. I mean, I, I literally turned down the sound on the television. No disrespect to Fran Healy or whoever was doing the games in those days, because Gary Cohn and Howie Rose, how, how could you not want to hear everything they had to say about the Mets? So now again, he was a radio guy and you forget about it because now he's a television guy and it, it feels like he's been doing it all his life. And you know that if you were to put Gary Cohn, say, on Meet the Press, I don't mean it as a guest, make him the moderator of Meet the Press, Meet the Press would be a, a must-watch show. You know that he could do anything in broadcasting if he really wanted to. And I'm not looking to get him extra work. I'm just, I, I've heard him do Seton Hall basketball games. I don't care about Seton Hall basketball games on the radio. But he's magnificent at that. As long as we're sizing up plaques, whatever the, whatever they use for the uh, Ford Frick Award, get one ready for Gary Cohn. So are we breaking news here today that Gary Cohn is going to replace Chuck Todd on Meet the Press? Oh, if only it were so. I wish. <laughs> so the first player we're going to discuss today, he's a possible Hall of Famer. He's a great Met, and yet his greatness on the field is only the third thing that people think about when they think about him in a Mets context. Carlos Beltran, I agree. Great player. Might have been a good manager. Oh, at least we'll never know about Carlos Beltran managing the 2020 Mets because interesting thing happened on his way to the manager's office after he was named to that job. There was a little something about sign stealing in Houston. And while no players were directly implicated in terms of suspensions, Carlos Beltran's name came up big time in the report. And that has sort of become his scarlet letter. When he retired, he was as unimpeachable a figure as you could have had in baseball. All his teammates had always said the greatest things about his leadership skills and his knowledge of the game. And perhaps that was a way of saying, hey, this guy really knows how to steal signs. But I think what uh, you may be alluding to most of all in terms of Carlos Beltran as a Met and what gets remembered was one at bat in 2006, which didn't work out for the best. Took called strike three to end uh, the NLCS that year. And that was the end of the 2006 season. And what I thought was our best chance to win another World Series, except for 2022, hopefully. Beltron was, no doubt, the best center fielder all around the Mets ever had. There's really nobody who compares to him when you put the offense, the defense, the speed, everything together, and was part of a terrific era of Mets baseball, a short-lived era, unfortunately, and one that lost its heart, you might say, in terms of winning uh, the second half of Beltron's contract. But he was always a terrific player, a terrific leader. And as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned, I probably would not look for him to be a first ballot Hall of Famer after the Astros thing, but he is going to remain on the ballot. He's not going to have a problem getting 5% of the vote. 
And it's going to become a new December, January debate for people who like to mull these things over. I guess what we care about is, will he go in as a Met, as they say? To me, Carlos Beltran was a free agent who came to the Mets and played six and a half good years and went on and played for other teams. Made his name with other teams before and after. I would welcome the NY. I don't expect the NY. And I hope he comes back someday, if not to manage, then simply to be remembered and to be appreciated. Interestingly, he's not in the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame either. If you look at Beltron's war, wins above replacement, in 2006, 2007, and 2008, 7.8, 5.1, 7.2. Do you think that those three years were the three greatest consecutive years for a non-Mets pitcher in Mets history? It's up there. Three terrific years in a row. As, as I go through it uh, molecularly, let's say, I can remember, you know, dead spots in those years, certainly. But that's the problem with watching every day. You do remember the bad weeks and the 0 for 5s and that sort of thing. Best ever, maybe. Olerud's three years at the end of the 90s were incredible. David Wright was having three tremendous years in a row at the exact same time. Beltron was a different kind of player, but Reyes was having three years like that in a row. The uh, concept of wins above replacement vis-a-vis an average player is interesting because the Mets have had a lot of average players. <laughs> they were throwing a lot of average players in the outfield before Beltron came along. And his game was elevated. No offense to Juan Lagares, Beltron was as wonderful a center fielder to watch as I've ever seen. I felt I was understanding what my father and his generation were talking about with DiMaggio when I watched Beltron. The, the phrase graceful came to mind. The hitting numbers speak for themselves. One at bat in the playoffs excluded. And a lot of good at bats in the playoffs included, by the way. He could throw. He could run. He stole bases in an era where bases weren't necessarily being stolen before he got hurt. And he was at his peak. You know, one one kind of rough getting acquainted year in 2005. And then he was as much the MVP of the National League as anybody who actually won the award in 06. And there, were, like I said, there was a little bit of a dead spot there in 07, the middle of the season. Go back, look at September. Him and Wright and Moises Alou kept that team afloat when everybody else was disintegrating. And he was similar down the stretch, to the best of my recollection. In 2008, go back and look at game 162. Who hit the home run that tied the game before the bullpen gave it away? It was Carlos Beltran. There's just so much to recommend him. Best three years in a row, I wouldn't cry if Carlos Beltran got that honor. But he's uh, certainly a cut above. I can see him getting into the Mets Hall of Fame eventually. I should hope so. There's no reason not to. The only reason you wouldn't have was because he was feuding at one point with ownership. That was a long time ago. That was over a knee operation of, for which there was some disagreement. But that's water under Shea Bridge, as they say. He didn't do anything with signs and garbage cans and video monitors at City Field. That was uh, Houston's problem. But there's no reason you wouldn't want to maintain relations with him. The only thing uh, I can really say that isn't uh, wonderful about Carlos Beltran at the moment, is he's going to do some games for the Yes Network, which is his business, and he's retired, so he has to make a buck. There are a few ex-Mets who've taken that money, and we move on uh, in that regard. But Beltron uh, hopefully one day comes back to Flushing, uh, is given a plaque, tips a cap, and uh, we all feel good about those seven years. And we move on to John Olerud, because you mentioned him in his three years with the Mets. 
And his war, 1997, 98, 99, 4.4, 8.1, 5.8. Those are great numbers. Three years, though, not a lot of time in the blue and orange. Not enough time. I don't mean not enough time in which to give him accolades, just not enough time. I wish he had stayed longer. Nobody that I knew then or now wanted to see John Olerud go, but he had family issues and was from the Pacific Northwest and the Mariners offered him a contract. John Olerud on a franchise that never knew the name Keith Hernandez was the best first baseman there ever was, even though it was only for three years. That 1998 season, whatever the war you just mentioned was, was out of this world. John Olerud hit 354 that year, shattered Cleon Jones's standard for a batting average as a Met. He was amazing that September, as, as long as we're entertaining ourselves with collapses. He's the one guy who kept it together and kept the Mets elevated him in Piazza. Just such a smooth hitter and such a smooth first baseman, part of the quote-unquote greatest infield ever, which I'm only putting in quotes because people kind of know it that way. And just a wonderful character because on a team with lots of combustible personalities, Olru just kept that low profile, that hard hat over his head, got his singles and doubles and drove in his runs. And it was just beautiful. You put him in the in the third hole in the lineup, he'd get on base. If, if we're talking about the Mets Hall of Fame, for, for which I am not a, a tight-fisted gatekeeper to begin with, I'm ushering him in. I'm ushering him on to whatever today's era, golden era ballot, whatever it's called. Uh, let, let those folks in Cooperstown take a second look because he's got some serious credentials. But most importantly, in 1997, 1998, 1999, he helped make us a serious contender. For that, I'll always be grateful. Some of the time we were grateful for Daniel Murphy. Other times we weren't. David Wright described Daniel Murphy's base running as if Murphy thinks he's invisible. We think about his 2015 postseason when he hit seven home runs in 14 games. We also think about the horrific error he made in the World Series, one of the most consequential errors in World Series history. How do you feel about Daniel Murphy's eligibility for the Mets Hall of Fame? Daniel Murphy is a beautiful Met because he's everything. He is one of the greatest players they've ever had. He's one of the worst players they've ever had (laughs) with affection. And no, don't look up lots of numbers and tell me that, no, these weren't as bad as so-and-so's. There was something about Daniel Murphy that on any given day, you'd, you'd cringe and hide your eyes and just wish he'd go find a position. And then there were days where you were just so grateful to have him because the things he did well, he did very well. And the things he didn't do well, he worked really hard to do better. This was a man without a position, and yet he played four of them as a Met. And when they didn't have anybody to play those positions, I don't know exactly what the process was, but it felt like he said, put me in, coach. I'll do it. And he played a lot of first base when Lucas Duda was injured. He played a lot of third base when David Wright was injured. They didn't have a left fielder after Moises Alou went down. He was not a qualified left fielder, but he didn't say, I can't do this. He said, point me the way. Tell me which one is left field. And ultimately, he made himself into a real second baseman. Not a great second baseman, but a legitimate second baseman. And the hitting just kept getting better through the years, culminating down the stretch in 2015 when he discovered about the concept of launch angle, which manifested itself, yes, in that 2015 postseason for two rounds, and it was beautiful. So he is a overriding figure of the last 10 years in a good way. And yeah, he did have that invisible base running thing and not quite mastering ground balls and all of that stuff, but he really put himself out there. 
the fact that when he retired after having spent a couple of years in Washington and then making the tour of the National League with some other teams and murdered us, especially with a, as a national, when he sort of took that Jeff Kent route. Oh, my God, I knew he was good, but I didn't know he was this good. I think the sense was, hey, good old Daniel Murphy's retiring. We, lo- we like him. We remember him. So he's one of those all-is-forgiven guys, even, yes, even for Game 4 of the 2015 World Series, which I had a hard time getting over because I had a very nice view of him making that error that I can still see. And it was one of six or seven turning points, all of them turning against us in that World Series. But, you know, the, the old saying, we wouldn't have been there without him. So if, if uh, someday uh, he invisibly runs into the Mets Hall of Fame, I will visibly or visibly wave him in. I would endorse his candidacy despite that error and despite his success in, in a Washington Nationals uniform. Do you think that Sandy Alderson let him go because Sandy couldn't get past the error? I don't know that Sandy Alderson really bought into Daniel Murphy. He was one of these players he was kind of stuck with all those years, one of the few Mets who endured from pre-Alderson. The thing about Murphy after the Mets was he was such a good hitter and a power hitter. And of course, we had that sneak preview in the playoffs. And I get the feeling Alderson just figured that was the aberration, not the World Series, and that he hadn't grown as a hitter, which he obviously did. And Murphy went to Washington, where he had 25 home runs in 2016 and 23 in 2017. He had a positive war despite a negative defensive war. He was a great national and he could have been a great met for longer maybe it'll leave town a little bit maybe it's a nolan ryan situation and we move on to another player who had trouble finding his position we're talking about howard johnson the mets even put him at shortstop he also played the outfield primarily played third base but we remember him for his power and his speed he was a 30 30 player howard johnson was a great met yeah howard johnson began to peak a little after 86. So I have to be honest, sometimes I, I almost forget he was on deck when uh, Mookie was at bat and Ray Knight was on second. But, uh, you know, you see the film clips and you see him there and you remember that one of the great trades in Mets history was Walt Terrell to the Tigers, perfectly good pitcher, getting this additional third baseman, which we didn't realize we needed because we had Ray Knight sticking around. We had Hubie Brooks, but we only had Hubie Brooks for a couple more days because getting Howard Johnson allowed us to trade Hubie Brooks and get Gary Carter, which is a whole other facet to those days. But back to Howard Johnson, a terrific power hitter. And he showed flashes of that for a couple of years, really busted out in 87 after they let Ray Knight go and Dave Wagner wasn't quite ready. And you mentioned the various positions. I got to hand it to Howard Johnson. They yanked him around, not having all the confidence in the world in his third base skills, which were, I thought, fine. Not Ventura level, but pretty good. And they put him at shortstop. Davey loved his bat that much that if there was the opportunity, say you had Sid Fernandez on the mound and you weren't going to have a lot of ground balls, put Hojo at short and somebody else at third and get a little more offense. So they yanked him around the infield. Then when they were short of outfielders later, I guess 1991, they said, hey, Hojo, do us a favor. We, we didn't bother re-signing Daryl Strawberry. Could you take your league-leading RBI total out to right field and play for the last month, month and a half of the season? And he said, okay, I'll do that. And he ends up leading the league in home runs and RBIs. In between, he's the best-hitting third baseman in the National League post-Mike Schmidt. So he was 
hardworking player, selfless player, I thought. A terrific player, a guy who wasn't necessarily cut out for New York, but made himself a favorite of Mets fans. I'm not sure why he's gone a little underappreciated, unnoticed in an official capacity, maybe because he's come back to the organization once or twice as a coach and they had to let him go. I don't know if that gets into it, but I hope that he's back with his protege, David Wright. Howard was one of his coaches. They got along great. You know, that 30-30 thing, like you said, that's not nothing. Daryl did it. David did it. And Hojo did it. And Hojo did it three times. And he did it as an infield, which very few players have done. So just, you know, an all-around really good man. And only downside, I suppose, to Hojo is that the team kind of fell off a cliff every year <laughs> that he really succeeded. I don't think it was his fault, but uh, 87 is his first great year, and the Mets fall short. 89 it's a banner year, and the Mets fall short. 91, the year after Strawberry left, and the team kind of collapsed. I think he should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. Would you give him a, your vote? He's got it. All right, we have three more hitters to talk about. And one I didn't expect to discuss, but last time when we were talking about Bobby Valentine, you said that Bobby Valentine had great success despite having a outfield that wasn't great. One of the players was Benny Agbayani. Let's discuss him. We remember one of the home runs he hit, of course, at least one. Uh, not a fantastic Met, but a Met that was beloved. What did I say about Daniel Murphy, a beautiful Met? That's what I felt about Benny. I think Benny is sort of from that long line that started with Ron Swoboda. Uh, you can't help but love this guy, no matter his foibles. And ultimately, he's going to come through. And he came through an awful lot for a couple of years. 99 and 2000, which coincidentally, or not coincidentally, years of the Mets went to the playoffs and once went to the World Series. Benny had a knack for, for showing up, uh, whether it was to, to win that game in Tokyo on opening day when he wasn't even supposed to be on the roster. They were going to shuffle him off to Norfolk for a week or when he beat the Giants in a very cold uh, night at Shea Stadium. And that time that he... Uh, decided that there were three outs in the inning while he was playing left field and he tossed the kid a ball <laughs> that oh oh wait it's only two outs and we just lost a run because i was generous and he runs back to get the ball from the kid and the kid is heartbroken <laughs> benny agbaya he's one of those players you congratulate yourself on being a baseball fan about because how could you not love this guy from hawaii war number 50 like sid fernandez because it was the 50th state Came out with his own coffee. Came out with his own memoir after a couple of years in the big leagues. And no, he wasn't great in the Carlos Beltran sense. He was a great part of those teams. And people love to chant Benny repeatedly. The organist, whose name I don't remember, and not Jane Jarvis, this is years later, would, would play a little Benny in the Jets. They played the theme from Hawaii 5 This is the stuff that being a Met is about, being a Mets fan is about. So I realize that Benny Agbayani under... Current circumstances of saying, well, let's let's get this guy's war and take a look at it. Let's look at his OPS. Probably ain't going to the Mets Hall of Fame. But it'd be a better world if he did. You know, in the in the same spirit that I was talking in a previous episode about the Casey Stengel vestibule and honoring those players who were kind of there at the beginning. I think there's something to be said for honoring the players who have some combination of being a real character and making a real contribution, especially to a winning team. It didn't last long as a Met. It lasted long in Japan, by the way, where he hooked up again with Bobby Valentine. Nothing but fond memories, and I think if we kind of ease up on, on taking ourselves too seriously and we don't just look for the next Kevin McReynolds or whoever, 
I think Benny Agbayani uh, is a candidate. Well, that surprises me. I expected him to be someone we fondly cheered at Old Timers Day this year and nothing more, but uh, reconsider that. We move on to Lee Mazzilli, a Met we fondly remember, a big part of the 1986 Mets. I'm surprised that he's not in the Mets Hall of Fame. What do you think? Lee Mazzilli was a big part of the 1986 Mets because he was the 1979 Mets. He was the poster boy, literally of the Mets of the late 70s and early 80s, when nobody was making posters of any Met. But Lee Mazzilli captured our fancy and gave us something to hold on to. Made the All-Star team in 79, hit a big home run to tie the game, got a big bases-loaded walk off Ron Guidry, put the National League ahead. Every Mets fan watching that game from Seattle leaned forward, rubbed his hands together, said, when it was over, when the National League had won, oh boy, they're going to give the MVP to Lee Mazzilli. And they gave it to Dave Parker because Dave Parker made a couple of really great throws. And who had ever heard of Lee Mazzilli until that moment? Who ever heard of the New York Mets in 1979? But he's the guy we hang our hat on. We think back to that otherwise not glorious era. It was kind of sad that Lee Mazzilli's flame flickered out after the 1981 season. He had to be traded for a couple of minor leaguers named Ron Darling and Walt Terrell to Texas and went off eventually to the Pirates, where he seemed to settle in. But then, lo and behold, the summer of 86, he becomes available, and the Mets scoop him up, and he's back in the orange and blue where he belongs. He's a huge part of clinching the National League East that year, getting the Mets into the playoffs, and yes, Game 6 and Game 7, as if we had had all our prayers answered, or dreams, secularly speaking, from when we were a little younger, 1979, and to have Mazzilli come back when he did and be a part of that team. And remember, Lee Mazzilli was one of us. He was from Brooklyn. He grew up a Mets fan. This was where he was meant to be. And he had that wonderful second act. You could argue, and I don't know why you want to argue, you could just say it nicely, but you could argue that Mazzilli had the best second act in Mets history next to Rusty Staub in terms of one of these guys who left and came back. Those things don't always work out. For Mazzilli, he had a really nice time as a pinch hitter deluxe and fourth outfielder and fill-in first baseman. He did come back, do a little broadcasting with Wayne Randazzo uh, last September. It was nice to hear him again. But uh, he, he, he belongs as much as anybody in that retail space <laughs> of uh, the Jackie Robinson or Rotunda. The quintessential Mets leadoff hitter, Jose Reyes. He won a batting title. He was in GQ when he hit one into the gap and turned it on going from first to third. He reached another gear and it was wonderful to see. I remember one night I was watching a game with my son Dylan and Reyes tripled and Dylan said, it's like he can do that anytime he wants. And for a while, it certainly felt that way. For a few years, there was nothing like Jose Reyes batting leadoff for the New York Mets. The word electric is thrown around a great deal. It never applied more than to Jose Reyes circa 2005 to 2008. He was healthy. His hamstrings weren't bothering him. He had mastered to whatever extent he could the strike zone. And pitchers were at their own risk throwing to him, putting him on base. And he became a catcher's nightmare because he was going to be on second pretty soon if he singled or walked. He was going to be on third pretty soon if he singled or doubled or walked. He might be on third anyway because he tripled. There was one moment that really stays with me 
late in the 2006 season. Puts one to the gap, like you said, and he comes all around, all the way for an inside the park home run that I swear could have been five bases if he really wanted it to. It's (laughs) like they ran out of bases. Just the most magical player I ever experienced in that context of speed and power. You know, was good for 20 home runs a year, approximately, for a couple of years there. And played a great shortstop, too. Based on the merits of the case, we were to rearrange the plaques in something other than chronological order. We would want Jose Reyes' plaque leading off and everybody else benefiting from batting behind him. You mentioned 2006, at least 20 home runs, 20 triples, 20 doubles, and 20 stolen bases. That's not a normal stat line. And he won the batting title. And whenever that's mentioned, some people criticize him for his final game when he was leading. He had won at bat. He bunted for a single and took himself out. And so many people, Ted Williams, Ted Williams, Ted Williams, as if that's the only way you could do it. Well, there's no law that you have to do it the way Ted Williams did it. I would like to be in a situation where there's incantation available of Ted Williams, Ted Williams, Ted Williams, and he would magically appear. People would say, hey, there goes the greatest hitter who ever lived. Uh, you know, what, what you're referring to, of course, is that Ted Williams had a batting average that rounded up to 400 entering the final day of the 1941 season with a double header. Ted Williams doesn't play. He's a 400 hitter technically. And Ted Williams said, nah, it's not the way to do it. And he went six for eight. We love to look back on that. The stakes for Jose Reyes were a little less historic. And there have been a lot of players who've protected batting averages. That didn't bother me in the least. What bothered me, quite frankly, and I say this as somebody who not only identified Jose Reyes as his favorite player back in the day, really the last favorite player I had, because you get to a certain point in life. It's kind of strange going on about he's my favorite player, but that's really how I felt about Reyes. This turned out to be Reyes' last game as a Met during his first tenure, which we didn't necessarily know. We knew he was going to be a free agent. And he got his one base hit, and then he called for a pinch runner, and Terry Collins abided by his request. That bothered me, not so much that he wanted to get out of the game, that he couldn't have just hung around a little longer. It's the top of the first inning, and we all want to enjoy him, at least to the extent that he stays on base until the bottom of the first, and maybe you send out the shortstop. In this case, it was Justin Turner who who took his place on the bases and let him tip his cap then. I think we were all just taken by surprise. But honestly, that was choreography. And 2011, although it, it seems so far removed from 2006 because of where the Mets were, was in a way quintessential Reyes again when he was healthy and he missed some time that year with hamstrings. You could not keep him off base in the middle of the season. And for him to win a batting title was a huge deal. No Met had ever won a batting title before. We had discussed John Olerud and his fantastic 354 season. Unfortunately, it didn't win him a batting title. I believe Larry Walker won it that year. And Cleon Jones hit 340, but it was not enough for a batting title. Reyes's average was 337. It was enough for a batting title. He fended off Ryan Braun and Matt Kemp, and it was very exciting. And you know what? The oral history aspect of this aside, the fact that you remember it and I remember it, you look in the record book and you see National League batting average 2011 number one Jose Reyes and that's what lives on and the way the memory of how he just plied his craft Uh, that was one of my greatest thrills as a fan was watching that whole season and that batting crown being won he returned to the Mets to end his career but it wasn't the same well it couldn't have been the same for a couple of reasons one he was five years older when he came back and quite frankly he wasn't as good and he had left There was probably a little hard feeling among 
certain fans. There's always hard feeling among certain fans. I don't mean to use a straw man here. That he took the money and ran to the Marlins, uh, one of our division rivals. Of course, the Mets weren't offering the money at the time. So it was not a great time to be a free agent in Mets land. But the bigger issue for Jose Reyes was a domestic violence rap that he brought upon himself in Hawaii during, ironically, the 2015 World Series. The fact that we got him back after this incident and a suspension and a public apology and whatever community service MLB demanded all, all of those things, it felt a little less than innocent. And the thing we always loved about Reyes was there was an innocence to him. I remember, he came up at 19 years old, one day shy of his 20th birthday. Nobody has done that since then on the Mets. There have been you know, a handful through the years of players who were still in their teens, Ed Cranepool, Doc Gooden famously among them. So there was always this sense of, but who's a Reyes? He's just a kid. And now it felt, oh man, he's not a kid anymore. And it's not all innocent. All of that said, when he does come back, it doesn't quite feel perfect. And I was going to say it doesn't feel right. It didn't feel perfect, which was sad. I, I wished it to be perfect. The reason he was here was because David Wright was injured and Jose Reyes was going to play third base, which was kind of strange unto itself. I don't think he'd ever played third base in the major leagues, but he picked up a glove. He learned the position like a lot of Mets have over the years, and he wound up contributing to a wild card team. He had a really good last couple of months, and you kind of got used to the idea that Jose Reyes was back and his wife was still with him and spoke up for him. And you had to say at some point, I guess he's done what he's supposed to do, and now he's allowed to be a ball player again. I understand that there are fans who can never look at him again. The last couple of years after 2016, he was less and less effective, probably played more than they would have liked. He was still the starting third baseman in 17 when everything went to hell, quite frankly, and Wright wasn't back. And then 18, he kind of hung on with a sub 200 average most days and would fill in here and there. But I tell you what, it was all worth it for me. That final weekend of 2018, when David Wright comes off the disabled list at last with his bad back and works himself into a state of being able to come out and play one more game in the field and to have David Wright run out to third and Jose Reyes run out to short. And after a few innings, the two of them embracing and, and Wright tipping his cap. And then as kind of a postscript the next day, Reyes having a miniature version of that kind of farewell. It closed a period in Mets history for me, I think for the franchise in general. The Mets who've been so not great about acknowledging endings, you know, I think nailed it twice, giving those guys their moments. I hope that if everybody's still a solid citizen and all remains forgiven, uh, that someday, yeah, his, his plaque will join Wright's and any number of people who we are inducting into the Mets Hall of Fame. I agree with you. If you say Ted Williams three times, does Michael Keaton appear? That would be fantastic. By the way, the next three players have something in common. Al Leiter had one signature moment as a Met. Pitched many great games, one game comes to mind, and that's the 1999 playoff game against Cincinnati. One game to determine who plays on. Leiter pitches a complete game, his only complete game of the season, a two-hitter, 135 pitches. The Mets win 5 nothing. Al Leiter is worthy of being in the Mets Hall of Fame. What a way to ring out the 20th century in terms of the regular season, because that playoff game was technically a regular season game, game 163. No, Al Leiter threw a lot of pitches in general. 
He did not work the cleanest innings, but boy, did he always left everything out there. And that was a foreshadowing to say it was a throwback game. Because even in 1999, there weren't that many complete games being thrown. I think the Mets in general threw four as a staff. And two of them were that final weekend. Rick Reed on Saturday night against Pittsburgh as part of the effort to get the Mets into a one-game playoff. And then Al Leiter, as you said, stepping up. And Al Leiter did a lot of stepping up in his years as a Met, which I believe was seven, starting in 98 when we sort of inherited him from the Marlins. It's not like they just left him at our doorstep, but when the Marlins were tearing apart their world championship club, they were trading pieces and we traded for Al Leiter. And it was one of those marriages that was meant to be. Al Leiter, Jersey kid. Al Leiter was definitely from Tom's River. I'm hoping I got the town right, but I'm pretty sure that's where he was from. Grew up a Mets fan. We always give points for that. And he was so happy to be in New York. And he was so expressive. That's how I knew he was happy. One of the first things that hit my wife and me when Al Leiter started pitching for the Mets was the way you knew how he was doing in the game, not by the line score, but by the faces he made on the mound. It was just something charming about that. It gave you another reason to to root for a solid left-handed pitcher who became when there wasn't a bigger name available, your de facto ace. It seemed the Mets were, you know, at various times signing bigger names, but it was always Al Leiter who you kind of leaned on. There was opening day or the beginning of a playoff series or a big game down the stretch, none bigger than Game 163 against Cincinnati to push the Mets into the postseason for the first time in 11 years. And save for one sore thumb of an outing uh, in the NLCS that year, he was just a terrific big game pitcher and just the kind of guy you, you loved listening to talk about his craft and you loved getting behind. And we've brought up a lot of players, some of whom I will admit are somewhat esoteric choices for the Mets Hall of Fame. Al Leiter is in that wing, shall we say, of players where if I didn't follow this at all, I'd say, what do you mean he's not already in the Mets Hall of Fame? He was as important to that era as Alfonso and Piazza. And the next two players were, sadly, the only two Mets World Series MVPs. In 1969, it was Don Clendenin, acquired midseason. He had three home runs, four games, because he didn't play in one of the games in the World Series. By the way, interesting note, the Mets beat the Braves in the NLCS in 1969. Clendenin didn't play in any of those games. It's called a platoon for a reason. Gil Hodges platooned Ed Grainful and Don Clendenin, so when a Righty was going, which was what the Braves were full of at the time, Phil Necro and company. Uh, you were going to see Ed Cranepool bat. And when you face the Orioles, who were strong in the left-handed pitching department, you were going to see Don Clendenin play first base. And boy, did he take advantage. And he was a big part of the 69 Mets run to the playoffs. Do you think they get there without him? You know, I don't think the Mets get anywhere without anybody in 1969, you know, the, the epitome of a team effort. But Don Clendenin was a signal event in the history of the Mets, not just the 69 Mets, but the Mets as a franchise, because up until June 15th of that year, had the Mets ever made a deadline deal with an eye on strengthening their position for contention? Of course not. They had never contended for anything other than ninth place once or twice. The Mets were growing up and Don Clendenin was that bat they had always looked at longingly from afar, could never get somebody who still had some prime left and somebody who was going to join a lineup that could benefit where he wouldn't just be one veteran player and a bunch of guys who didn't know what they were doing. So it's it's hard to say 
that the 69 Mets become what we now know as the 69 Mets without Don Clendenin. And it, it was a brief run as a Met, comparatively speaking, versus some of the other guys we've talked about. But I think you win a World Series MVP. Well, you could have given it to Al Weiss, I suppose, who also had a great World Series, by the way. When you perform at that level, I think that gives you bonus points in our, uh, our Hall of Fame Derby, such as it is. So Don Clendenin stuck around for another year, set a Met record for RBIs at any position, played first base more often than not, and came up with 97, broke Frank Thomas's record, and had one more year after that. And then, you know, he was pretty close to the end. They dealt him away. But I think number 22 here... Uh, for the 69 and 70 and 71 Mets made enough of an impact that if you have something called a team hall of fame and you have two world championships, what are you doing not inducting the most valuable player from one or both of those world championships? And we move on to the other World Series Mets MVP. You know who that is. That's Ray Knight. And that's, by the way, our third consecutive number 22. Yeah, that's not an accident as far as I'm concerned. Also, my subtle way of saying that if somehow the Mets had gotten through Game 5, which Al Leiter left his heart and soul on the mound in the 2000 World Series, I think he was on his way to becoming the next Mets World Series MVP. Alas, we will never know. But back to 1986, which is always a nice place to go. Uh, you know, Ray Knight didn't exactly have the same trajectory as Don Clendenin, but you could look at him as that veteran player they had to bring in. It, it wasn't celebrated like it was for Carter or Hernandez. Ray Knight was a late season addition in 84, and they got him from Houston. And at the time, it didn't really register as anything enormous other than, hey, we have some depth here. We got a guy who's been an all-star in the past. What we didn't realize was going on, Frank Cashin's chess game perhaps, was Ray Knight was becoming a third baseman for the Mets. Hubie Brooks moved over to short, brought his very solid bat over there, and set up the moves that would eventually bring you Gary Carter because you could trade Hubie Brooks and you would bring in another third baseman who we've talked about, Howard Johnson. So there was a lot going on, none of which was really reflected from a Ray Knight perspective in 1985, where he had a dreadful year, quite honestly. And you could have had him. I could have had him. Any National League or American League team could have had him in the spring of 86. The only guy who really wanted him around was Davey Johnson. And Davey Johnson's faith paid off because Ray Knight had a renaissance year. I believe he was named Comeback Player of the Year by whoever gave out that award in those days. It may not have been a BBWA thing yet, but I think the Sporting News had it. But we knew he was the Comeback Player of the Year. We didn't, we didn't need certification. He had, I think, six home runs in April, and we were off and running. Ray Knight just kept getting big hits and, and established himself as on a team with Carter and Hernandez and Foster. He was the leader of the team. It didn't wear the C. They didn't name him captain or anything, but he's the guy everybody looked to. And you saw that if you watched Once Upon a Time in Queens, and you've heard the stories. You've heard Keith talk about it on SNY, and which is all great. And which is all stuff that, as they say, doesn't show up in the box score directly. But we saw what it meant in the World Series to have Ray Knight. And we saw Ray Knight come through with the huge hit and score the run of all time in Game 6. And we saw him hit the home run that put the Mets ahead to stay in Game 7. The World Series MVP was well-deserved. An encore in 1987 was well-deserved. That, unfortunately, was not meant to be. And without taking apart Frank Cashins and whoever else is thinking, I think they regretted that. And I'm sorry that Ray Knight took a long time to kind of come back to the Mets' orbit. I know he felt disrespected, stayed away from a lot of the 
Old Timers Day and things like Old Timers Day over the years until 2016, or, or did not accept invitations, and wound up uh, doing TV for the Nationals, which, you know, has benefit of Nationals fans, perhaps, but was was not something uh, we enjoyed. Ray Knight is, to us, a Mets Hall of Famer. I hope he'll be back for Old Timers Day. I hope his plaque uh, is up there with Clendenin's and everybody else's we've been asking for. Clendenin and Knight together, unfortunately, it would be Clendenin's family representing him. But at the same time, that would be a wonderful way of paying tribute to the only two Mets World Series MVPs so far. So far, absolutely. But when Knight left, it was abrupt and it felt forced by Cashin. There was no point to it. And it just felt backhanded. Why would you not want to, at the very least, give him a nice contract for a year or two? Say thank you for 1986. And listen, the worst came to worst. If Ray Knight's batting 142 on June 1st, 1987, we say, not we, but you know, the people who made those decisions might say, listen, Ray, you got to understand, nothing personal, but it's time to go. And then you say, well, that didn't work. Maybe we should have cut him sooner. Well, cutting him sooner didn't work. So we're, again, we're dealing in hindsight here. But let's get back to game six, game seven, without Ray Knight. I, I don't know that 1986 is 1986. Him and Clendenin, boy, 22 plus 22, uh, that would be a beautiful thing. Absolutely. You mentioned that he was an announcer for the Nationals. He would do the pre and post game show for Masson, and I would go to a Nationals game when the Mets were playing. There's no other reason to set foot there. And the pre and post game announcers were in a booth, and the Nationals fans would look at the booth and go, hey, that's Ray Knight. He's the announcer. And I just look at them and think, oh, he is so much more. Ray Knight was so much more than that. At least one reader of a blog I did with Jason, Faith and Fear and Flushing, once sent us a picture of himself wearing the Faith and Fear t-shirt, posing with Ray Knight. That made me feel so happy that Ray Knight didn't say, hey guy, get away from me. I don't know what those numbers are. I'm sure he knew from 37, 14, 41, because we would put the retired numbers on, on the shirt. And uh, it just gave me a sense that he still felt that connection to us, the Mets, that is. It was really nice 2016 when they had the 30th reunion of the 86 Mets that he was there among everybody. Again, hopefully in this new era, Ray Knight is around. And if we can put him in the Hall of Fame, the Mets Hall of Fame, all the better. Let's go to the mound for the final two players of this discussion, starting with David Cohn. He struck out 19 Phillies on the final game of the 1991 regular season. David Cohn, an excellent pitcher for other teams, but let's talk about his career with the Mets. We love, as Mets fans, to berate ourselves for trading Nolan Ryan, for example. We traded for David Cohn. Nobody knew how good David Cohn was going to be. Maybe some folks in Kansas City did, but he was an under-the-radar acquisition in the spring of 87. Traded a very solid backup catcher with a World Series ring named Ed Hearn. It became one of the great trades of the 1980s, a decade when there were a lot of great trades made by the Mets front office, and he just blossomed as a pitcher who gave you a look from the mound, a little bit in the realm of what we were talking about with Sid Fernandez, a look like nobody else on the Mets had, what they called that Laredo delivery. And once he harnessed it in 1988, he was unhittable. He won 20 games that year, lost only three, and was on his way. Funny, I, th- I think I heard Keith Hernandez refer to him as, as not quite ready yet in 1988, 
as he would become in later years, which is hilarious to think about that he wasn't even his best yet. And he won 20 games and was such a huge part of a division winning team. By 1991, by that afternoon that you refer to the final game that year where he strikes out 19, while you're not looking for anybody to strike out 19 batters, it's not surprising that it was David Cohn. He had that kind of stuff, that kind of command. And he had that kind of focus that day because there was a little incident uh, with the police in Philadelphia and some problems he ran into, let's just say, off the field. So for him to uh, be facing something that, that never amounted to anything in terms of actual charges to go out there and strike out 19. I don't care if it's the last day of the year and players are looking to get on the bus and go home for the season. That is amazing. That's what David Cohn had become by his final couple of years as a Met. Top strikeout pitcher in the National League. Went to the All-Star game twice as a Met. The second time in July of 92, which I emphasize here because by August of 92, he was an ex-Met because the Mets were now in that position at the tail end of what had been a glorious era of taking the whole thing apart. And David Cohn was about to be a free agent, and the Mets had apparently decided they were not going to make a big effort to re-sign him, so let's do what teams that don't have much to gain do, and let's trade David Cohn for a couple of kids, in this case, Jeff Kent and Ryan Thompson. And then David Cohn goes on and becomes an even better pitcher for the Blue Jays and the Yankees, and has a long, prosperous career, winning World Series, throwing a perfect game, and then comes back to the Mets a la Jose Reyes at the end of his career for a couple of months back in 2003. After a year off, I believe, didn't have anything left, really. Had one one big night. I'll never forget sitting in my office, very cold night at Shea Stadium. He pitches five innings after being inactive for a year, and he shuts down the Expos. He strikes out, or at least gets out, Vladimir Guerrero in a very big spot, leaves the mound to great applause from a sparse crowd because it's freezing. And the Mets in 2003 aren't drawing that many anyway. And that was kind of it. Sort of outside of the Mets' orbit all these years, he went to the Yes Network and has had a nice broadcasting career. And he may not be a Met in the sense of if you were going into the first town hall of fame that you would see a Mets cap on his plaque. But I think to us who had him at the beginning, who had him for five terrific seasons, huge part of that team, huge part of keeping that team going through 1990, a lot to cheer for. If we're expanding the, uh, the parameters of the Mets hall of fame, uh, welcome David Cohen. Let's wrap up this discussion with another pitcher. He was a unicorn. We'll see good pitchers again, but nobody quite like R.A. Dickey, Cy Young winner in 2012. Lordy, there was nobody like R.A. Dickey. You're absolutely right. Unicorn is a perfect word for it. And who was R.A. Dickey before he came to the Mets? Did you have any concept of what R.A. Dickey was going to become when they signed him to a AAA contract in December of 2009? He had no reputation uh, in New York or in the National League, but we didn't know that R.A. Dickey was truly mastering the knuckleball. Go to Buffalo. I think he threw a one-hitter, like one hit, and then retire the next 27, something like that. Before you know it, he's in New York and he's a really good pitcher and he is the all-time post-game quote. So if I could have a hand in writing Ari Dickey's plaque in the Mets Hall of Fame, it would say, 
consequential because that's the night he grabbed me when they asked him so you know what were the conditions like tonight Ari is that the reason you threw such and such and he said it wasn't consequential and I said I've never heard a pitcher say consequential before we talk about things that show up in the box score but in the box score of my heart it fluttered and I loved Ari Dickey from that moment and I had every reason to have company by 2012 because Ari Dickey mastered the National League with a pitch that nobody else threw other knuckleballers didn't throw the way he did he threw this hard knuckleball that wasn't it didn't just come in on butterfly wings it would come in with a vengeance it was so unhittable by the middle of the season you remember he threw two consecutive one hitters i was feeling bad for the other teams because i said these batters are not going to touch this thing and he just never ceases being interesting he writes an autobiography that is searing and honest he takes part in, in a documentary about the knuckleball, we get to know him even more. He climbs, what was it, Kilimanjaro? I, uh, forgive me if I'm not getting the right mountain here <laughs> to raise awareness for causes close to him. It was just an incredible run. And to have this almost George Plimpton-esque, Sid Finch-type character show up in our midst and be a New York Met, it felt so perfect. The Cy Young, the 20 wins, when nobody was winning 20 games anymore, was the cherry atop the cherry, atop the Sunday. And then he had to go away because it just seemed like that that's how we did things. You know, almost everybody we've talked about here, putting aside our World Series MVPs, Reyes, Leiter, Cohn, and now Dickey, they all did time in Toronto. They're all such special players, it's as if we couldn't confine them inside the borders of one nation. And, you know, R.A. went off to uh, Toronto for a few years and pitched okay and helped them win a, div a division title, I believe. Pitched in the playoffs, came back, pitched for Atlanta, which wasn't thrilling for us, except he got to throw his final innings at City Field as a Brave. And Mets fans gave him a nice hand, and he tipped his cap because R.A. Dickey is an old soul who would indeed tip his cap. God, how do you not love R.A. Dickey? And again, he's in the three-season club. Clendenin, Knight, we had talked about Olerud. Three seasons is plenty. You make an impact like that. You know what you want to do? You want to put a plaque in the Hall of Fame for him off of uh, the Jackie Robinson Rotunda? You want to put it not perfect. You want to skew it a little bit to reflect that he was unlike anybody else and that his pitches came in like nobody else's, but he belongs in there every bit as much as anybody else uh, we've talked about. You did it again, Greg. Off the top of your head, Mount Kilimanjaro. Well, I'm going to go uh, teach that class in topography when we're done here, because apparently I know my mountains, or at least one of them. It helps if a Cy Young winner for the Mets has climbed it. Then maybe I'll remember it. He did it to raise awareness of the issue of human trafficking in India. That's per Wikipedia. Yeah. Well, that'll do it for this episode of National League Town. We'll be back with more next week. Until then, I'm Jeff Heisen. I'm Greg Prince, and we wish you happy holidays. And as always, let's go Mets. Copyright 2022 music provided by the Royal Arctic Institute. Check them out on Spotify.